So 20 years ago this year, back in 2003, I was finishing up Bible college and I accepted a ministry position at a Christian community center in an under-resourced neighborhood of New Orleans called Hollygrove. One of my professors at my Pentecostal Bible college happened to be a mainline Presbyterian and his father had been a missionary who started a racial reconciliation cafe in the Irish Channel of New Orleans in the 60s, which was uh, a hot spot, a powder keg of racial tension. And he was inspired by the philosophy of Dr. John Perkins. If you don't know who Dr. John Perkins is, I am thrilled to introduce him to you. He is a living legend, uh, he's a hero of mine. Uh, Dr. Perkins was born in Mississippi, uh, just a few generations removed from slavery. His parents were sharecroppers, um, and his brother was murdered by a racist police officer for sitting in the wrong part of a movie theater. This was obviously Jim Crow era. And so he fled Mississippi. He moved to Pasadena, California. And there in Pasadena, California, his son Spencer came to faith in Christ and led Dr. Perkins to faith in Christ. And Dr. Perkins felt called back to Mississippi to start a racial reconciliation ministry that's still there today called Voice of Calvary. So in 2003, and I, uh, when I had just begun serving at this community center, the community center had, a had the same philosophy as Dr. Perkins. It was part of the CCDA, the, the organization that Dr. Perkins founded. And so I got to go to the annual conference of the CCDA that happened to be in New Orleans that year. I got to go for free. And at that conference, uh, I met a young man. He was from Tennessee, and uh, he was teaching, he was co-teaching a workshop called Jesus for President. Uh, he was a bit of a misfit. He walked around the conference center in homemade clothes made of sackcloth, and he was uh, a nobody. He hadn't written any books yet. Uh, he wasn't on the board of the CCDA yet. Um, and, but he intrigued me. And so I went to his workshop. And at that workshop, Shane Claiborne said something that uh, I think about all the time. I think about it constantly. And it has, I think, I think this is fair to say, I think it changed the trajectory of my life. Um, he read from our gospel text this morning, Luke 13, uh, the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And after he had read that passage with an emphasis on the part about Jesus longing to gather uh, Jerusalem to himself like a mother hen, he told us that there was a, there was a piece of historical and cultural context that would paint a fuller picture of this scene. He shared with us that it was common in Rome at the time, wherever Rome would occupy a city, they would set up their symbol. Their symbol was an eagle. And there, you could see this eagle on the standards of Roman soldiers. You could see this eagle on statues, and they would make sure that the eagle was prominently displayed throughout the occupied territory to let everyone know who was in charge, right? So Shane Claiborne said in this workshop, he said, it's very likely, perhaps even probable, 
that when Jesus was saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, I wish I could gather you together like a mother hen. He was probably standing somewhere near a big bird of prey, a statue or a, or a standard that was symbolizing Rome. And so not only was Jesus expressing the love of God, he was also contrasting the way of Jesus with the way of empire. The way of Jesus is a way of fierce love, a place of refuge and belonging. But the way of empire is a way of domination and violence, a place of isolation and alienation. This morning, we are entering into the Lenten season. We're going to take a different tact this year from most years. Most years, uh, I'm a big fan of leaning into the more melancholy aspects of Lent because I think that that's a challenge for Americans most years. Most years, we're not, we're not comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And so, um, but this year feels different. This year feels like We've already been melancholy for several years. This year, we're going to take a different tact when it comes to Lent. I'm excited about this, year, this year's uh, series because it's called Full to the Brim, an Expansive Lent. And in this season, um, we're going to focus more on what we are taking hold of and less on what we are letting go of. And what we are taking hold of this Lent is the expansive love of God and grace of God. So in this message this morning, we want to peer into this episode in the life of Jesus and focus on how it reveals God's love, God's fierce love that makes space for us and protects us. But before I go any further, I'm going to invite you to pray with me for the Spirit's work of illumination. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, you are the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. And you are the one who indwells us both individually and collectively. That is why our spirits are restless until we find our rest in you. Would you shine your light of illumination upon the words of scripture that we hear this morning? And would you open our hearts and minds to hear what it is that you would have us hear? May the word be like a seed that finds good soil. May it take up root and bear fruit, good fruit, fruit that will last. May the words of my lips, meditations of my hearts be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. amen. This episode in the life of Jesus that we heard this morning read, it begins with the Pharisees warning Jesus about a threat from Herod. Do you remember that? Okay, so the Pharisees say to Jesus, go, go away from here. Herod wants to kill you. You ever notice how odd that is? Okay, so throughout the gospel, the Pharisees are not Jesus' friends, right? Throughout the gospels, the Pharisees are testing Jesus, trying to trap him in his own words. They do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They do not trust his interpretation of the Torah. They challenge him constantly. So why would they be warning him? Why would they be uh, trying to protect him? They wouldn't. The answer seems pretty clear that this is a thinly veiled plot to scare Jesus, to get Jesus to move on, to abandon his prophetic ministry. But that's the second odd thing about this text. 
To hear modern Westerners tell Jesus' story, you'd almost believe that Jesus walked around talking about forgiveness and going to heaven when we die. Why would that be a threat to anyone? Jesus would not be threatening Herod. Jesus would not be threatening the Pharisees. In fact, there's not a lot that we can uh, fully 100% construct historically from this time, but one thing remains constantly true, that people who are talking about individualistic forgiveness and going to heaven when you die are not a threat to anyone. In fact, slave owners in the antebellum South would tell that story to their slaves and freely authorize that story to be preached in churches. It caused them no anxiety whatsoever. But if you start talking about overturning the established order of things, the empire, the Herods of this world get murderously anxious, don't they? You start talking about a new way of being, a different kingdom with a better king, and those with an invested interest in the status quo will start looking for ways to get rid of you. (laughs) And that's what they did to Jesus, right? Jesus was talking about this all the time. He was constantly telling stories about a king who would send his son to deliver a message And those who heard the message would kill the son. That was one of his favorite stories to tell. And by this point in Luke, Jesus has already predicted his death twice. Once in chapter 9, actually twice in chapter 9. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. If Jesus was just walking around preaching forgiveness and a heavenly afterlife, he wouldn't have been a target of death threats. This modern Western reinvention of Jesus as an individualist and an escapist, it makes no sense in light of this text. But political powers like Herod weren't the only threat to Jesus. He was also threatened by religious powers too. I'm sure I don't need to remind you that religious people tend to use their religion or can use their religion to authorize some atrocities in history. Some of the worst atrocities in history have been done in the name of religion. And I probably don't need to remind you that even in our country, religious people hate prophets. Remember Dr. King? Remember how badly religious people in this country hated Dr. King? I don't need to remind you that his letter from a Birmingham jail was written to religious leaders who wanted to silence him and stifle any progress. So maybe this is a good point to add this note. This text gives us a lens on how to evaluate the established order of our day. This text gives us an insight. We can ask questions like this. Who are the Herods today? who feel like their power is being threatened by prophetic voices, demanding dignity for people made in the image of God. This text calls into question the established order and draws our attention to the prophets of our day and how they are being threatened by the powers that be. Herod was a real threat to Jesus. We know this because we know how the story goes, right? Herod eventually 
conspires with the chief priests and with Pilate, the power of Rome, to kill Jesus. But Jesus, in this passage, is undeterred. Jesus said, go tell that fox, I'm right here whenever he's ready, and I'm not going anywhere. Jesus is unflappable in this text. He's defiant, brazen. His prophetic witness flies in the face of the powers that be who hold the power to kill him. Because he knows something that they don't. That he is the resurrection and the life. They can't kill the one who has the power to conquer death. But I want to point out another modern Western distortion that we have to be careful with. We have to be careful not to think that Jesus is defiant and bold in this text because he knows he's immortal. (laughs) That's not it. I like what Dr. Will Gaffney says. Dr. Will Gaffney says, Jesus spoke of the death of prophets like himself. Women and men who stood up to power. Jesus wasn't willing to die because he was the son of God. He was willing to die because he was the kind of man who stood with the poor and oppressed peoples of earth against the demonic corrupting power of empire. That's a good word. Jesus was defiant and bold in this text because he embodied the fierce love of God. I'm going to tell you, I've probably already told you this before. Uh, This comes as no surprise. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. Um, You probably already know bits and pieces of this, but when I was uh, a kid, my biological mother was abusive and neglectful. She was a single mom and I was an only child. And if our personalities are forged in our childhoods, then it's no surprise how I came out in Enneagram 8, right? Because early on, I felt completely betrayed and abandoned by my mother. I learned very, very early on that I couldn't trust her to be my protector. I had to fend for myself. She couldn't be constant for me because she wasn't even constant for herself. So, of course, I looked elsewhere for safety and protection. At 15, I felt more safe with a sawed-off shotgun in my trunk than I did with my mom. I felt more safe, clicked up with other guys who had guns and united by a color and by symbols and by paper-thin platitudes about brotherhood and family. But maybe you've already seen how that movie ends, too. There's no real safety there, either. I wasn't safe when I was put in the middle of gunfights and drug deals and police investigations. I was the opposite of safe when jealousy and rumors and a little bit of money could make anyone's life seem expendable. And that's why what Jesus says next in this passage, it, it's, it's deeply profound for me. It's deeply meaningful for me. It has been since I was a kid. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. This is a, for me, this is a powerful picture, a powerful revelation of the love of God. 
Jesus is fiercely defiant as a prophet who tells despots they can stick their death threats wherever. But he weeps over Jerusalem with a mother's heart. A protective, nurturing mother's heart. Julian of Norwich uh, wrote a book called Revelations of Divine Love. She writes this. Jesus Christ, therefore, who himself overcame evil with good, is our true mother. We received our being from him. And that is where his maternity starts. And with it comes the gentle protection and the guard of love, which will never cease surrounding us. Today, there is a kind of vitriol that's pouring out of the lips and keyboards of Herod's, fearing that their patriarchal power is slipping away. Today, there's a lot of backlash against people who no longer respect the, the established religious order that places men over women and pictures masculinity as violent and domineering. The powers are raging today that prophets dare to preach the way of Jesus rather than bow down to the way of empire. Have you seen it? But I'm here to tell you this morning that the power of Jesus is nurturing and protective, like a hen's wings. And I know this firsthand because when I was 17 and I had newly come to faith, there was this period in my life of a few years when I felt like I was in a cocoon of God's love. I would find empty rooms of my home church in Urbana, Illinois, and I would pray for hours. Didn't, didn't seem like time mattered. Time, didn't, time ceased to, uh, to, to exist when I was in this cocoon of God's love. I would, I would pray like endlessly, it felt like. And in that period, I felt like I was being remothered by God, reparented by God, like I was being healed from trauma. And there's a particular album that I would play on repeat. And I actually still listen to that album to this day. Um, I'll, I'll share it with you if you want to know. Uh, but that's not really the point. The point is that every time I listen to that album to this day, I'm taken right back to that time in my life. I'm taken right back to that feeling of being so close to God, feeling like I was hidden in the wings of God's love. This foundation of knowing God's mothering, nurturing love, I think that's what sustains us in our work. If we are going to be agents of reconciliation in the world, if we are going to be standard bearers for justice, peace builders, I think we have to have this sense of intimate closeness with God, being hidden in the wings of God's love. You probably know from our stories that Oshita and I have moved around a lot. We've served in uh, Skid Row. We've served in uh, Holly Grove. We've served in parts of Boston, Roxbury. And some of those seasons were hard. Some of those seasons we were dirt poor and scraping by and trying to raise kids and feeding kids at all hours of the night and trying to serve our neighbors, trying to love our neighbors with the love of God. What sustained us in those seasons? was this sense of being hidden in God, 
of finding our identity in Christ. I call it the secret place. And I want to know, like, do you know where your secret place is? Do you have that intimate closeness with God? Can you go there? Can you be with God and dwell with God in the intimacy of that that mothering love? This year, we are embracing an expansive Lent, one that invites us to enter into the fierce, defiant, truth-telling love of Jesus, but also that nurturing, protecting, mothering love of God. I like what Pastor Gaffney said. The love of God for us is so deep and wide that there is not enough words or images or language to tell it. Lent is an opportunity for us to reflect on and rest in that love. We relinquish things that give us pleasure that we might take more pleasure in the love of God. We let go of things that distract us from the love of God. We take on disciplines and practices that draw us more deeply into the embrace of God's wings. In the austerity of Lent is a great comfort to find not a stern father, but a loving mother. As we explore new patterns of prayer during Lent, today's gospel is an invitation to embrace God in new language and different images as open, free, and boundless as is the love of God for us. So to that end, I want to invite Pastor Oshida back up here because Pastor Oshida is... uh, She is a natural when it comes to contemplative forms of prayer. They come naturally to her. And so I've learned a lot from her about being more contemplative. So I've asked her to close this message with a centering prayer practice. 